2: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
3: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show and happy Reformation Day. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Tom Jipping. He is deputy director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. He's also a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about The impeachment resolution that was passed in the House earlier today, unlike any impeachment resolution we've seen heretofore. In fact, you can check that out. Uh, Uh, Congress.org, I believe it is. Let me check that out. Anyway, and you can read the resolution. Compare that, for example, it's uh, it's Congress.gov. You can read that resolution and compare it to the resolution, for example, with uh, Bill Clinton. 660 is the number for this time around. 581 was the Clinton resolution. And the differences are stark in terms of the bipartisan nature, the balanced nature of the resolution uh, that was used uh, before. That was also the case with Nixon, although it wasn't implemented because he resigned ahead of time. But nonetheless, you can check that out. We'll talk with Tom Jipping about that. And then we'll share with you some conversations I had with some of the uh, uh, guests from the last week. So stick around for that. Taking a look at some of the headlines, the House has approved an impeachment inquiry and the rules after a fiery full debate. It doesn't quite reach what the Republicans had called for. A sharply divided House voted to approve a resolution setting ground rules for the inquiry into the president, putting lawmakers on record over the contentious process while setting the stage for proceedings to move into the public eye after weeks of closed door depositions. At least uh, in some cases, we'll talk about that with Tom Jipping. It doesn't apply to all of the six committees. That are continuing to pursue this. The measure uh, passed largely along party lines 232 to 196. Two Democrats defected on that vote. And a coalition of conservative groups has filed an ethics complaint against House Speaker Nancy Pelosi alleging she has hypocritically usurped the authority of the president and weaponized impeachment proceedings in launching her official impeachment inquiry without benefit of a vote of the full House of Representatives and without indicating any uh, anything remotely qualifying as treason, bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanors that is the subject of the inquiry. Speaker Pelosi has weaponized impeachment Reads the complaint. It was led by Tea Party Patriots Actions' Jenny Beth Martin and signed by 40 different groups. The complaint adds that Thursday's scheduled vote that was today on the resolution codifying uh, the impeachment inquiry is inadequate at this stage and says Pelosi's one-person decision is in violation of historical precedent. Presidential hopeful Senator Elizabeth Warren said uh, Wednesday that she agrees with the University of Massachusetts Amherst economist who concluded a Medicare for all health care plan could result in substantial job losses, calling it part of the cost issue. Robert Pollan of UMass Political Economy Research Institute told Kaiser Health News earlier this year that most of the job losses would hit administrative positions, about half among insurers and half in hospitals and doctors' offices. Warren was um, made aware of Pollan's conclusion during an interview with New Hampshire Public Radio. Medicare for all has become a point of contention among Democrats vying for the White House. Warren, now considered a co-frontrunner, has come under pressure from her presidential rivals to explain how she would raise the nearly $30 trillion over 10 years to fund that plan. The Pentagon on Wednesday released video footage of the raid that led to the death of Islamic State leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Marine Corps General Kenneth McKenzie, Jr., commander of the U.S. Central Command, gave a play-by-play of the Special Operations Forces raid on an ISIS compound in northern Syria last Saturday that ended with Baghdadi killing himself with an explosive vest. Overall, U.S. forces killed six ISIS members, four women and another man aside from Baghdadi in that raid. McKenzie also clarified that Baghdadi' explosive vest also killed two children he had brought with him into the tunnel when the U.S. troops pursued him. For a seventh straight game, the road team emerged victorious in the 2019 World Series. The Washington Nationals claimed the first world championship in franchise history, defeating the Houston Astros 6-2. to Washington won the first two games in Houston. Then Houston returned the favor by taking three straight in D.C. with Wednesday night's victory. The Nationals took two more in Texas. Nationals ace Steven Strasburg uh, with a pair of wins, including Game 6 was named series MVP. And Josh Hamilton, a five-time MLB's all-star and 2010 American League MVP, was charged Wednesday with injury to a child after his 14-year-old daughter told his ex-wife he had struck the girl at his Keller, Texas home. Hamilton, 38, surrendered on Wednesday to the Tarrant County Jail in Fort Worth and was released in lieu of $35,000 bond. If convicted, he could face a sentence of two to 10 years in prison. Former National Security Advisor John Bolton summoned to testify in the House impeachment inquiry. Not clear whether or not he will follow through on that since he's no longer employed by the White House. And the co-chairman of the Turkish-American Advocacy Group with close ties to Ankara contributed $1,500 last month to the campaign of Representative Ilhan Omar, who's under fire this week over votes she cast supporting Turkish Uh, government positions and twitter says it's going to ban political ads ahead of the 2020 election pennsylvania uh judge has thrown out a uh, pittsburgh gun control measure and police blew up an innocent man's house in search of an armed shoplifter oops wrong house too bad the court has ruled it is mind-boggling he's just going to have to live with the loss of the police officer's mistake and the u.s uh, releasing the Baghdadi raid video Warns others that likely retribution could be the uh, result. And on this day in history, 1926, uh, escape artist Harry Houdini dies in Detroit of uh, peritonitis resulting from a ruptured appendix. And President Lyndon Johnson on this day in 1968 orders a halt to all U.S. bombing of North Vietnam, saying he hopes for fruitful peace negotiations Would that that had been the case. On this day in history, 1984, Indian Prime Minister Indiri Gandhi is assassinated by two um, Sikh security guards. And finally, on this day in history, 1992, Pope John Paul II formally proclaims the Roman Catholic Church erred in condemning um, astronomer Galileo for holding that the Earth was not the center of the universe. Well, polling on the impeachment is not so rosy for those who want to impeach the president. Of course, that could change at any time. It depends on how the questions are asked, which is always the case with polls. The more detailed breakdown shows the percentage seeking an impeachment right now is at a mere 36 percent. There's also a large division by race. 30 percent of white voters polled wanted a House impeachment vote versus 73 percent of black voters. Forty five percent of white voters wanted the matter dropped, while just seven percent of black voters favored that result. And it doesn't appear to have hurt Trump's approval rating. Meanwhile, Democrats rejected Republicans' attempt to make this process appear fair. And Democrat Alcee Hastings mocked Republicans for being in the minority party. Kimberly Strassel takes, uh, he should probably think about that because chances are before his career ends, he'll be in it again. Kimberly Strassel takes issue with a defense that Ukraine expert Alexander Vindman's patriotism can't be questioned and Representative uh, Mike Getz. Uh, filed an ethics complaint against um, Chairman Schiff. All of that is the ongoing back and forth over the impeachment of the president continues. Now, coming up next, we're going to talk with Tom Jipping. What actually passed by way of Resolution 660 in the House today? Is it the same kind of resolution that we saw with the impeachment of Bill Clinton, for example, in which it was a fair, balanced uh, process in which both the Republicans and the Democrats had equal access to subpoena power and all of the elements that lead... Uh, to a an impeachment? Is the Judiciary uh, Committee, for example, the lead committee in this process? And what about the other committees that have been meeting for weeks and months? And will the information that they have gathered, the secret hearings that they have held, will that now become ma- uh, become public or be made public is a better way of putting it. We'll talk about all of that with Tom Jipping in just a few minutes. And then in the second hour, we'll hear from Judy Glenny, whose son committed suicide, the process of making the decision that he wanted to live like a girl or as a girl is the subject. Linda Mental will join us, Living Beyond Pain, a holistic approach to manage pain and get your life back. We'll also hear from Dean Reuter about a hidden Nazi that the United States protected, at least for a period of time. It's a disturbing story, but gives us a glimpse into the kind of intrigue and the difficult decisions being made in the wake of the end of World War II and the disillusion of Nazi Germany. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back.
2: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show Podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
3: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you've heard by now, a sharply divided house voted today to approve a resolution that sets the ground rules for the impeachment inquiry into the president, putting lawmakers on record over the contentious process, while setting the stage for proceedings to move into the public eye after weeks of closed-door depositions. While well, the measure passed largely along party lines, 232 to 196, two Democrats defected and several sat out as Well, what does this mean? Are we now going to see a rollout that's very similar to what we've seen in previous occasions where there has been an impeachment or at least the early stages of an impeachment process, as in the case of Richard Nixon? Or is this something quite different? Well, here to talk with us about it is uh, Tom Jipping, Deputy Director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me.
3: Well, the Republicans objected, and rightly so, that there was a lack of transparency up to this point. There had not been a process uh, established formally in the House, and uh, there certainly was not a bipartisan uh, tenor to this whole process. What happened today that uh, makes what's been happening for months behind closed doors any different?
0: Well, and it's, it's important to be precise about what this resolution, House Resolution 660, Uh, did and did not do, Mm -hmm. first of all, it only applies to two of the six committees that are participating in this impeachment inquiry. It only applies to the Judiciary Committee and the Intelligence Committee and essentially says to the other four, keep doing what you're doing, which means, I assume, that those four committees can continue in secret, making it up as they go along, doing whatever it is that they choose to do. The second thing is, while it... This resolution purports to, quote, authorize hearings, uh, impeachment hearings in the intelligence or judiciary committees. Since those are already existing committees, uh, they don't need a resolution to tell them that they may hold hearings. That's, that's the authority of every committee in the House and the Senate. And then probably the biggest uh, problem with what is in this resolution, uh, as you alluded to, it's been a lot of criticism that... Congress did not pass a resolution authorizing this impeachment inquiry at the beginning. That's what the Congress has done in the past with impeachments. Instead, this is kind of in the middle of the game. But it also set a very different procedure in terms of the rights of the majority and the minority on the Judiciary and Intelligence Committees in any hearings that come up. Past, past resolutions have given the same uh, kind of rights and the same investigative authority to both the majority and the minority. That's what you would do if you wanted it to be nonpartisan.
3: And a representative of the president would also have access to information and, and an opportunity for due process as well. Is that also excluded from this uh, most recent resolution? Well, there's, there's something Uh, it alludes to something
0: in that category and also to the ability of the majority and the minority to answer questions. But but again, that's in the nature of ordinary hearings that these committees do already. The the most important thing was the, the power to issue subpoenas, for example, which would compel people to come and testify or compel the production of documents. In the past, both the majority and minority had equal subpoena power. They did it jointly, and if either one wouldn't cooperate, the other could ask uh, the, the authorization of the committee. Now, only the minority, only the Republican side has to ask permission. The Democratic side can issue subpoenas unilaterally. That's never been done before. It isn't, it's the opposite of uh, equal and balanced authority, and it's the opposite of being nonpartisan.
3: One of the other obje- other objections that the Republicans have raised is the absence of transparency. Now there has been for weeks, if not months, of hearings behind closed doors. Does this uh, resolution say anything about information that was gathered through that process now being made available broadly uh, both to the administration, to the president, and his representatives, to the Republicans? Does it say anything about what's already happened that the American people and members of the Republican Party have not been given access to now being given broad access to that moving forward?
0: No, it does not go into detail about that. I think Democrats in the House want people to think that it does. They want people to think that this basically catches everything up. Uh, even though they didn't do an authorizing resolution in the beginning, uh, but it doesn't. We've had six or more weeks of... and, And remember, in past impeachments, like for Bill Clinton, Richard Nixon, as you alluded to before, there was only one committee authorized to investigate and to hold hearings, and that was the Judiciary Committee. This time, it's six different committees, and as we said, the House didn't even authorize the impeachment inquiry to begin, and now six weeks in... Four of them are are told to still go forth and do whatever you want to do. And two of them, uh, if they hold hearings, uh, the rules say that the majority Democrats uh, have more authority than Republicans. Um, that, that's that's nowhere near the, the transparency, the due process, the fairness that past impeachments have used. We know how to do impeachment fairly and in a balanced uh, and legitimate way. And, and it Democrats chose not to do it that way and they've not been called to account for it. I want I want Speaker Nancy Pelosi to explain why they have refused to do this impeachment process in the same fair in nonpartisan way that we've done it in the past.
3: Now, one of my concerns is that the American people are led to believe, and this is what I'm hearing from Democrats in response to all of this that happened today, uh, that this answers the, uh, the objections that the Republicans made early on, and now they're, they're shifting their focus onto other things to object to rather than the substance, giving the impression that we have now answered the primary concerns that were raised early on by the Republicans. Is the media... Uh, doing its job by clarifying for the American people what this resolution is and is not and whether or not it satisfies the clear objections that have been raised by Republicans from the beginning? No, they're not. And
0: I I urge people to read the resolutions for themselves. It's House Resolution 660 is the one that's current. House Resolution 581 from 1998 is the one for Clinton, for the Clinton impeachment. Those are all available at congress.gov. Uh, go read them for yourself. It, it's, to me, it's humorous uh, for Democrats who have been moving the goalposts as far as what they want to impeach but Donald Trump for, uh, now essentially trying to point the, that same kind of a finger at Republicans. Look, the, the, the issue with regard to these hearings from the beginning has primarily been subpoena power. It's the authority of the committees to compel Testimony and the production of documents—that's been the issue from the beginning. On the face of the resolutions, the in the past they've had equal subpoena power. Today, Democrats can do it their own way, and Republicans have to ask the Democrats permission. Now, you know, I, I, I'm a I'm a lawyer, but I can still kind of speak common sense English. And those two, that's why I wrote the piece in National Review saying one of these impeachment resolutions does not look like mm. the other.
3: <laughs> no, it certainly uh, does not. What recourse does either the president or Republicans uh, in the House and the Senate, for that matter, although they're not directly involved, what uh, recourse do they have in addressing the, the lack of transparency, balance, and accountability that's a part of this um, version of a resolution.
0: Well, they don't have a, a, any formal or legal recourse. The Constitution gives the sole power of impeachment to the House. And, you know, today, no more than two Democrats voted against this sham uh, this this radical departure from the way impeachment has been done in the past well under those circumstances uh, they have enough votes to do it any way they want but people do need to consider the damage that this does to the basic foundations of government in other words the impeachment process it is part of the constitution it is a very serious matter and you know the the best course is to have consensus about doing this in a non-partisan way that's consistent with uh, the precedents that we have from the past, and people have to consider whether departing from all of that uh, purely for partisan reasons uh, does our country any good. Um, I think, you know, the, the Senate trial process, uh, the the president has to be convicted by two-thirds of the Senate. That's not going to happen, so, and everyone knows it. So. Uh, You know, he's going to stay in office if Democrats thought they could get him out of office before the election next year. They're mistaken. But uh, that's really not the issue. The issue is the damage that's being done to the essential uh, elements of our system of government.
3: Tom Jipping, thank you so much for talking with us today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Again, Tom Jipping is deputy director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and senior legal fellow. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, Judy Glennie will hear her story.
2: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
3: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When my next guest's son told her, Mom, I'm a girl. This Christian mother, she struggled, as any Christian mother would. Her faith and her dreams were shattered. Well, through watching her child come to grips with transgenderism and his eventual suicide, she learned to trust God completely and surrender everything to Him. It's much easier to say that than it is to actually do it and walk through it. But she shares her story in her latest book, Mom, I'm a girl. Judy Glenny. she teaches weight training at Clark College in Vancouver, uh, where she lives with her husband, Gary, pastor of Portland Bible Church in uh, Portland. As the forerunner for um, women's weightlifting, she won many national and international titles, officiated the sports at the Olympic Games, has um, authored many uh, articles on weightlifting and a book on weightlifting technique. She continues to be a featured speaker for Stonecroft Ministries, where she shares God's wonderful message of restoration after great heartache. When not teaching or speaking, she enjoys the outdoor life of skiing, tennis, and hiking. And I think it's important to mention all of that because it's an important element in the story. Judy Glennie joins us today to talk about her book, Mom, I'm a girl. These were the words of her son. Judy Glenny, thank you so much for being with us today.
4: Well, thank you, Georgina. I really appreciate your time.
3: This is a difficult story to tell. Let me ask you, for the sake of listeners who have yet to read it, why do you think it was important to tell this story? I think
4: it was really important because we as Christians are ignorant, uh, for one thing, of the transgender epidemic, actually, that is going on in our society today, and Christians are not immune to this situation, and I think we need to really get our eyes open to what is going on out there. Mm.
3: You begin um, by introducing your son, Scott, and you write, Scott Richard Glennie. That was the name printed on his birth certificate on the day he was born, September 8th, 1989. Sydney Royal Glenny was the name printed on his death certificate, June 5th, 2009. His name change was one of many alterations he underwent on his way to transitioning to be a girl. But I would like to introduce you to the son I knew. Talk a little bit about your son, Scott Richard Glennie, his early years, and at what point the suggestion that he was confused about his maleness um, began to at least appear in some small way.
4: Scott was an amazing boy. He was all fun. He was uh, wonderful. In athletics, he showed a lot of propensity to um, to sports and, and all activities. He was just a really neat, fun uh, boy growing up. He showed all the interest in boy things. He liked to ride his bike. He liked to skateboard. He showed all the characteristics of being a boy. So we had no... Problem with uh, you know him getting into sports and and so forth and and really uh, uh, pursuing that that part of him. He really showed no interest in female things, and I say that as a as a, an encapsulation of what we think real mm-hmm. things are. Uh, it wasn't until about oh his junior high years that he began to question. And he came to me with with um, kind of a question. He says, "Mom, what do you what do you think about um, about being a girl?" And and I explained to him what what I thought being a girl was. And actually, the things that I like to do as a girl wasn't really what girls were supposed to do.
3: Well, in fact, you grew I up like... as something of a tomboy, which you you talked with him about.
4: Exactly, I did, and I and I assured him that that uh, being a boy, being a girl, isn't really necessarily what you do, but what you are are on the inside. And uh, God had made each one of us with particular talents and abilities, so we really encouraged them to do those things that he liked to do. So like I say, in junior high, he had some questions about sexuality, and, and I really didn't think too much about it because that's the time when kids really start to explore and to question who and what they are. But it wasn't until probably about his freshman year that he really came out and he said, I'm a girl. I know I should have been a girl. That was a shock because, like I said, up until this time, he had shown really no female um, interest, uh, but he did come out and and make the statement.
3: Now You and your son were very close. I loved reading about how the two of you engaged in conversation quite often. Uh, You shared a lot of common interests. You spent time together doing things that were very active. When the words came out of his mouth that he he is a girl and that's what he wants to to live as, what did that do to your heart, first of all, as a mother, and then as a Christian woman um, relating to this boy that you have raised and loved so dearly?
4: First of all, I was very confused. I was... I really didn't know what to think about it, because here was this boy that, like you said, we had such a, a a commonality with sports, and we talked about all sorts of things, and right there, it became a division. I didn't know how to approach it. I didn't know anything about what this so-called transgender thing was all about. You know, mind you, this was 10 years ago, and it wasn't as prevalent in the media As it is today. So, the first thing I I thought, oh my goodness, what is happening to my son? I had no clue. I was uh, perplexed, frustrated, but I yearned to really know what was going on within my son's heart, within his mind. What was he thinking? And how was I going to respond as a Christian? Because I knew God had created him a boy. And that now he is very confused about that. I did not know how to approach him. I didn't know where to go for help. And that was my first thing. How do I get my son really the help that he needs? Because I knew that this was going to be a problem and a very deep problem if we didn't get some help. Yeah.
3: How did your husband, uh, who is a pastor, how did he respond to this? Were were there marked differences in the way you were beginning to process uh, your son's decision uh, as opposed to your husband.
4: He, I think, was in the same boat that that we that I was. We talked about it and we came to the to the same conclusion. We were just uh, we were we were sailing in, in open seas, as it were. We had no clue as to how to handle it. And of course, being a guy, he wanted to fix it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So he came about it from that angle. Let's do this, and let's. And he tried some of these things, and and he confronted Scott a lot more than than I did. Uh, that's pretty much the way guys operate. But um, but by and large, we were on the same page that we were searching for answers that we we didn't know. Uh, where to begin to even get them.
3: Yeah, yeah, finding resources was almost impossible at that time. You found, you thought and found a a counselor believing that would be the first step. Your son requested that that counselor not be a Christian counselor. Um, How did you find someone that would uh, be able to work with your son, and how did that go? The first
4: one, uh, I didn't tell Scott that he was a Christian, but obviously Scott (laughs) That's very uh, perceptive, and and he figured he was. And when he started when the counselor started getting close to the root of the problem, and again, I, I preface this by saying I didn't know what was going on in the counseling sessions, obviously, because counselors have this uh, privacy that mm-hmm. they have with their uh, with their clients, and even at that age, and this was, like I say, in the junior high age. I was not privy to a lot of the things going on. So the counselor was sharing this with me that he thought that when he struck chords that really started Scott thinking uh, deeply about his emotions and his thoughts, Scott just clammed up and he said, his excuse was I have too much schoolwork. I don't have time for this. So Mm -hmm. he pulled back and that was the end of that counseling session. The other counselor that we found was at Portland Fellowship, and they were very helpful. But again, they didn't have the resources at that time for transgender. They had a lot of homosexual recovery. So we got hold of a counselor that he thought he had some information about transgender and thought he could work with Scott, and he was in his 20s. We could kind of relate to Scott on on that level, but after about four or five sessions, the counselor came to me and he said, this is not working. I like Scott, and I do believe that he does have some issues, but we're just coming to an impasse. And then Scott related to me in his words that he's gay. He doesn't know anything about trans. Mm. So again, he pulled away from that counselor.
3: We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. In the book uh, titled "Mom, I'm a Girl," you write that little battles were now cropping up. Clothes were among those skirmishes, other things as well. We'll get into that when we return. Once again, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My guest is Judy Glenny. Her book is titled "Mom, I'm a Girl." We'll be back.
2: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
3: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Judy Glenny. She's the author of Mom, I'm a Girl. The book is written about her son who identified as transgender and later ended his own life. We'll get to that part of the story in just a few moments. But uh, in the early uh, stages, your son began to, um, as you uh, describe in the book, exhibit little battles that were cropping up. His clothes were uh, part of the the skirmish, um, how he carried himself, associating now in public school with LGBT Um, groups who supported the decision he was um, attempting to make. Talk a little bit about that season um, when your son was beginning to
4: manifest his desire to
3: be transgender.
4: He manifested, as you mentioned, uh, with the clothes. And granted, uh, girls in high school don't wear a lot of dresses, but he did wear some dresses. He wore tank tops and, and shorts and jeans, which a lot of high school girls wear. But uh, on occasion, he did wear long skirts. The most profound was, and this was kind of a, a, a cute story in a way that I had some shoulder pads that I used on some of my jackets. And he asked me one day, Mom, uh, where are the shoulder pads that that you that you have for your jackets? And I said, Well, I've got a spare pair that that I. Uh, Wear occasionally would you like them? He said, Yeah. And I didn't think too much about it at that time. Well, about five minutes later, he emerged with these um, shoulder pads as breasts under his tank top. And that really threw me through a loop. I, at that point, I didn't know what to do. So he came, that was the the first thing that, that really took us aback. How are we going to really respond now that he is actually making himself to be more effeminate in appearance? You're right that his, he, please go ahead. Uh, his hair was getting longer. It was now about shoulder length. We tried to to get him to uh, let, let the hair be a, a really non-issue, but uh, he began to take more uh, a care with his hair and do more feminine things with his hair. And then makeup wasn't really a part of it. He would wear makeup occasionally, but not often. Uh, to some events at school, he would wear makeup. But those were the most obvious in his appearance.
3: At one point, you asked your son, I'm curious, um, why do you want to be a girl? And the answer uh, was very insightful. How did he respond to your questioning, what about being a girl appealed to him?
4: He answered more on the emotional level. He said more, girls are, are so aware of their emotions. They can uh, express themselves. They can hug and they can, they can do these things that I don't feel a boy can do. So I'm thinking that he is coming more from that feminine side of him as being more expressive more than really feeling physically that he that he is a girl, but I could never get to the the that to me was the more expressive part of why he felt he was a girl emotionally. Now at one
3: point, your son decided that the the next thing that he should do would be to change his name uh, to Sydney Royal. Um, talk a little bit about that transition, and for you as parents, if you felt we should try to prevent this from happening, or as Christian parents in particular, how did you respond to the changes that you're seeing in your son, a feeling of responsibility um, as a parent, and then as a Christian parent, uh, knowing that he had a background in the Christian faith, and how did you deal with all of that?
4: That's a very difficult yes. time. Uh We as Christian parents continue to emphasize to him that God had created him um, a male. You are a male through and through, physically, chromosomally, emotionally. God created you a male. When we would do this, he would uh, come back and, and he would either say nothing about that or he would clam up about it. When it came to his name change, at this time, he was 18, so we could not re- legally prevent him from doing that and it was a very easy change so we really didn't have a whole lot to say about that we struggled to call him by that name we told him over and over you are our son we love you like uh, we love you regardless of of what you do but you will always be our son. You're always going to be our child. We love you unconditionally, and we emphasize that over and over and over again, that our love will never change. No matter what the name change is, we will love you. So that's the thing that we struggled with, and he insisted that we call him by his new name and his new pronoun of which, again, we struggled mightily with, and we avoided that a lot. And as a Christian, uh, there were some things that we had to lay the, the, the line down and, and say, we love you, but we cannot condone the things that, that you are doing. So we laid some parameters down as far as uh, how he was going to uh, act in our in our house and some things that that we felt we could not do as Christian parents. As the Bible says, God created male and female, and we know that you are created a male. But he began to cross those lines, and that's where a lot of the trouble started. Mm.
3: Now, as Christian parents, and you are obviously, as parents do, you're praying for your son, you love your son, you want to do what's right for your son— how did you relate to God in prayer during this season? As I, I'm certain you're asking that God would resolve this uh, this issue for your son, that there wouldn't be confusion. How was your relationship in praying for your son and your understanding of how God was responding to your cries for help?
4: Oh, that was a a real relentless time. Uh, my husband and I were both on our knees constantly. Before God, that He truly would, as you say, resolve the situation. That that He would bring to Scott the the fact that that God did uh, truly make him a boy, and that He would resolve the the confusion that that Scott was feeling. How that was going to happen, we didn't know. Again, we were still searching for some answers uh, uh, to the problem by counselors, but we knew that. Now was going by the wayside, so we continue to to uh, cry before god and and ask him for guidance, for wisdom, how to handle this situation, and certainly that his will be done in Scott's life in restoring him to what we knew. God's purpose
3: was in his life. You write that Scott expected us to just make this switch with him and go along with everything because we are his parents, as his parents, rather, we're supposed to be supportive of our children in difficult circumstances. In his mind, this would be showing our love for him. Now, that had to be a challenge because that is the expectation of a child. Um, but when it conflicts with your core uh, values, again, there is the uh, the challenge. Did God give you wisdom and how to navigate some of these thornier issues along the way?
4: That was a very sticky problem and one that caused us the most angst because in his mind and with a lot of uh, kids going through a lot of problems, they equate your uh, condoning their actions with your love. So if you love me, you will do this for me. That's how they equate it and we continually told him that as Christian parents, we need to abide by what God has told us to be the truth. And we consistently told him that, that you are putting your feelings before what God has specifically told you and shown you what you truly are. So we had to—that was a constant battle for us, is, is to show him that, that yes, uh, we love you, But no, we can't go along with what we know is a wrong action in what you're doing uh, with your life at this point in time. And that was truly a a constant battle and one that uh, he would at times uh, see through, but most of the time he would fight us. It was a very difficult time. For, uh, on that
3: point yeah we're talking with judy glennie she's the author of mom i'm a girl it's a story of her son who made the decision that he was going to live as a girl and she um chronicles this odyssey uh throughout the book we're going to take a quick break but we'll return uh, and uh, continue our conversation you're listening to the Georgine rice show
2: you're listening to the Georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq
3: you're listening to the Georgine Rice show I'm continuing my conversation with Judy Glenny she's the author of Mom I'm a girl the book is published by Redemption Press and really walks you through how she and her husband who is a pastor um who loved their son and cared for their son navigated these very difficult waters. Now, we've been talking a lot about how you as parents related to your son. How did he navigate um his friendships with other males and females in the school he was attending as well as some of the challenges of being in a public school um as a uh, as a girl
4: in a male body. Very interesting. There were some of his male friends that That took to his change rather easily. There were some, however, that definitely pulled away. So that was kind of a half-and-half kind of situation. He made friends rather quickly with uh, many of the girls in the school, and they supported him. They would uh, take him shopping, and they would uh, have time with uh, him doing girl things, as it were. The school was very supportive in the fact that they had a, at at that time, I would consider a very large LGBT uh, community. And, of course, they embraced him. So he could navigate through that, uh, that social part of it fairly easily. Now again I wasn't there at school on a daily basis to to see what really was going on but if he he came home with no repercussions with uh nothing uh, adverse that that he would tell us about that went on in school so uh, we assumed that he was being very well accepted in that uh, in that arena.
3: There was one Christmas season um, that you write about, followed by New Year, and you and your husband, Gary, had come home. You put a small whiteboard in the dining room where the two of you, the three of you, would often leave notes to let each other know uh, your whereabouts. One note was written by your son, so sorry, Mom and Dad, at the hospital. Can you tell us about that episode in which he um, ended up in the hospital for reasons. Until you arrived there, you didn't uh, didn't know.
4: Oh, our heart just sank. We were definitely at the at the point of of tears. We had no idea what would happen. We had no idea how the situation came about. We rushed to the hospital to find him in a very. Uh, plain room all by himself, and he was just looking very despondent, and we asked him what had happened, and the bottom line was that he was on the phone with a friend, and they were talking about some issues, and he had mentioned um, possibly taking his own life. It was apparently in a passing uh, statement that he had made to this friend, and the friend uh, bless her heart, she she kept him on the phone and in the meantime called 911 to say that her friend might be in danger of, of taking his life. So he ended up there, and uh, he subsequently was transferred to the hospital up north, about two hours north, because they didn't have any room in the facility uh, here in Vancouver. So he was taken up there to the to the mental uh, health uh, department of the hospital, where he saw some uh, people up there. That's where it really came to a head because we thought for sure now he was going to get the help. These people surely would come to our aid and know that he has some some issues that needed to be dealt with. Contrary to that. They came back after two weeks up there, and Scott was all happy when we saw him because they had affirmed that he truly was a girl, and they suggested hormonal treatments, that we were the problem.
3: Mm. Again, as a parent, that had to have been extremely painful. Talk a little bit about graduation and life away from uh, your supervision, uh, Scott, living in your home, um, which led to some struggles and some problems for Scott.
4: In the home, we, like I mentioned, we had laid some boundaries and he had crossed those boundaries. And we had said in the beginning that this is where we stand. You can make your decision. You abide by these uh, these boundaries or you don't. This is your decision. We're not forcing you out of the home. We are allowing you to stay here under these conditions When he did not meet those conditions, then we said, the time for you to depart has come. And he did. Uh, He left the home. Uh, He went to Portland, uh, which he found housing. Uh, He found uh, a job. So he was living on his own for a while. And we always told him, you could come home to visit. We will always expect you here in the home and he did he would come back um to visit for maybe an afternoon or an evening and it was very pleasant uh at, at that point in time but he mentioned quite often that he was saving money to get his uh surgery and that became another problem
3: mm-hmm. there's so much more in the book that our time will not allow us to uh, to get into um, but Scott ultimately ended his life. He had a brush uh, running with the law on occasion. Can you tell us about those latter years and what led, from your understanding, to Scott's decision to take his own life?
4: Well, the brush with the law was uh, an eye opener for us in, in the legal system. He ended up spending a couple days in the jail in jail for apparent trespassing and um, stealing of some some goods. We resolved that he went back to living in Portland, where he got a job. And the long and short of it was uh, that he lost his job. He had always told us that if if he couldn't live life as a woman, he wouldn't live life at all. So he was obviously saving up his money to get this transition surgery, of which we had he and I had many conversations about. And I pointed out the the downfalls, and I tried to get him to at least think about it, extend some time to give himself to to really get himself on, on on firm footing on what he was doing. He when he lost his job, he knew that again he lost his income, therefore he would lose the the funding that he would need to get this transition surgery. So uh, the inevitable happened that he knew that that he couldn't get a surgery, he couldn't live life as a woman, so he would not live it at all.
3: And he made the decision to end his life. As I read the early part of the book in which you describe your son as this um, very creative, artistic young man who had such promise for the story to end so tragically, it just it broke my heart. And I'm just reading the book. You actually lived it, and this is your son. Talk with us a little bit about what you, and, and I should mention that you had conversations with your son who had made a commitment to serve Christ as a youngster. Um, you had that kind of conversation about whether or not he had abandoned all all faith in God. Um, did that give you some hope as an adult to have that conversation with him and to see where his heart stood in terms of his um, his relationship to Christ.
4: That is one of my fondest memories that, that I look back on, that I know for an assurity that he is in heaven, and that's my greatest hope. When we had these conversations, I had some doubts because he had made a decision um, uh, to accept Jesus at a young age, mm-hmm. and so I brought this up to him, and I, and I questioned because I I had thought that maybe he had uh, either lost his faith or or had never made that commitment. And he, it's my question, but he looked at me very sternly and he said, mom, don't you think I remember when I made that decision? And that just, that warmed my heart. And so I look back and I know that he was assured of his salvation. And there were many times when he would come home and he would tell us of witnessing to his friends and he would say these kids they just don't believe the Bible. they just, who do they think jesus is questions or, or statements like that that um, that he would make and even in the letters uh that he he wrote several uh last letters to his friends and to us and uh he would he would assure them that they need to make their destiny before god and they, and he said If you don't know, ask my dad. Hmm. So we were very confident that uh, we know we will see him again, that that there is no question that he has made that decision.
3: In the latter part of your book, you really focus on the lessons that you learned, lessons in prayer, and uh, things that other families who might find themselves in a similar situation might benefit by. Uh, How can our listeners find a copy of your book, Mom, I'm a Girl, once again published by Redemption Press? They can go to my
4: website, um, uh, com, and there is, you can get it, uh, Amazon or PayPal. And I will just mention if they get it through PayPal, they don't have to pay shipping <laughs> because that comes, uh, directly from me. So, uh, that's, uh, one way they can get it. Um, I'm not sure if it's in, uh, the bookstores, but, uh, amazon or on my website
3: again the title of the book mom i'm a girl judy thank you so much for writing it had to have been painful uh to do so but maybe cathartic as well i'm i'm hoping and praying and i appreciate your emphasis on how you related to god and how he taught you through this uh, very challenging season thanks so much for talking with us today
4: Thank you, Georgina. I so appreciate
3: it. Again, Judy Glennie, the book titled Mom, I'm a Girl. And again, our conversation didn't reflect all the detail that she goes into about um, the challenge as a Christian mom and dad uh, with their son. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up.
2: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
3: Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest and her co-author, Say that our nation is being ravaged with an opioid epidemic, but still one in 10 Americans are suffering with chronic pain. Doctors and patients have been searching for ways to alleviate prolonged pain without the long-term use of pharmacology that can cause addiction. Well, in their new book, Living Beyond Pain, a holistic approach to manage pain and to get your life back, therapist, best-selling author, radio host, and professor, Dr. Linda Mental, and Dr. James Cribbs provide hope for hurting people with holistic, healthy ways to manage pain that will enable them to flourish and not just survive. Well, my guest, Dr. Linda Mental, is a national speaker, blogger, radio host, Uh, and best-selling author of 20 books with 27 years of clinical practice as a therapist and coach. Her current clinical and academic efforts are being directed toward the development of an interdisciplinary approach to pain management given the present opioid crisis and the need for non-pharmacological approaches to dealing with people in chronic pain. Well, she, along with Dr. James Cribbs, are the co-authors of Living Beyond Pain, a holistic approach to manage pain and get your life back. Uh, Dr. Mintel, thank you so much for joining us today. I so appreciate it.
5: It's been a while since I've talked to you, but I really appreciate you having me on, especially a topic like this that is just so pertinent to what is happening in our country today.
3: Absolutely. In fact, I think a lot of people have simply given up hope that Mm. apart from access to opioid drugs, pain management just is not possible. This is a very hopeful book. It's a very practical book to give people who are suffering from chronic pain Uh, hope that their life can thrive is uh a, the subtitle of your book suggests.
5: Well, I, I think one of the great quotes on there was from uh, the former governor, uh, Mike Huckabee, who who said, and he, the way he said it was just so great because he said that, that there's a, everybody knows that the, there's a fire alarm that's being sound with the opioid crisis and all the problems we're having. He said, this is the fire truck coming to put out the fire. So <laughs> that was a good way of summing it out that we've heard the alarm. We know the problem. We've seen all the people that are dying in our community from uh, addiction and from pain management gone uh, the wrong direction and so it was really a compelling thing for us to to say we've got to do something about this. We've got to give people practical real solutions that work and hopefully we put a lot of these in the book. We spent a lot Mm -hmm. of time reviewing the evidence so it's evidence-based treatments that we're talking about that are both some medical treatments, and then a lot of, like you said, non-pharmacological things that people can do to really turn down the volume on their pain, improve their functioning, and really improve the quality of their life. In Living
3: Beyond Pain, you explain some of the special challenges that people who suffer from chronic pain have to face on a daily basis. Uh, Talk a little bit about that to our listeners and paint a picture of what it is we're talking about addressing for those who live with chronic pain.
5: So, one of the things is this constant, you're just dealing with loss of control all the time. You feel very helpless, you feel misunderstood. A lot of times you people think you're making it up or that you're just creating too many problems related to your pain problems. They think you're overreacting or you should just get over it or be able to somehow you know think your way away from it and It's really not that simple, so you know the person who's listening and says, "I would just like to go out and throw a ball with my child." Or I'd like to go out with my friends and not wonder if I'm going to have a migraine and have to cancel at the last minute or leave the restaurant or whatever it is. You know, it's very impairing and it really does impact the quality of your life. I think I think in reality, Georgina, it affects every aspect of your life. The physical body, the mental, you know, your mental life, your emotional life, your relationships are affected, and even your spiritual life is, in fact, is affected by this. Mm.
3: You spend a fair amount of time in uh, Living Beyond Pain, explaining what pain is. Now, most of us think, well, I could pretty much answer that question, but we're talking about the kind of debilitating chronic pain that leaves people with a sense of hopelessness. Uh, talk a bit about how How it's sensed and processed in the body uh, and how um, it can change within the body over time so that we have a better understanding of what it is we're talking about.
5: I'm really glad you asked this because I don't really think that most of us understand the difference between acute and chronic pain and I know that I was like that when I went through a very difficult episode before I had back surgery and that pain was relieved. Um, I didn't really understand these differences but acute pain is usually defined as pain that lasts about up to maybe three, maybe six months related to some type of injury, nerve damage, some disease state in the body. Um, but when you're dealing with chronic pain, that stimulus, that thing that has happened to you that maybe injured you or created the problem, a lot of the time is gone and and you're still having that pain. So we like to talk about this like it's like having an alarm. Pain is like an alarm in the body. It goes off when there's danger, when there's a problem. But with chronic pain, it's like the danger isn't really there anymore, but the alarm continues to go off constantly. And that's because of the process in the body where the central nervous system gets very sensitized or what we would call wound up and it's opening up these sort of gates that are on these ascending pathways to the brain and it's telling the brain, you should have pain. And the brain then processes that and goes, yes, there's pain, even when there may not be any reason for that pain, people can still have pain. So the understanding that people need to have is pain is a perception that's in the brain and it's, it's learned. It's there, there's memory, there's emotion, there's feeling, there's all kinds of things that are surrounding it. And that's the part of the brain that we're really trying to change because the brain's been rewired and your nervous system has been really on high alert and sensitized and you have to learn how to calm all that down.
3: In learning to live um, beyond your pain, How important is it to understand the mechanism that produces what makes life unbearable?
5: Yeah. So if you don't understand that and you, you're walking around going, why can't I get better? Why can't I? And you don't understand the factors that really turn up the volume on your pain. You're going to continue to do things that are going to make that actual, that pain really worse. So that was the, the idea. We want to explain it in a physiological and an emotional way, what's going on, what happens in the brain. And then we wanted to give people these very practical things that they can do to start turning down that volume. I think if we if we have a minute for a story, uh, my, my co-author's wife loves the Tour de France. And so she's very into that race. And she it told us that for 100 years, the British team had never won that race. And so they decided to hire a new coach. That coach brought a concept from business with him. And that concept was a concept called marginal gains and this is what he did he looked at every aspect of riding a bike he looked at the handles the seat the tires the color of the bike dirt on the bike every aspect of it and he said to the team we're going to improve each of those aspects of riding the bike on that race one percent and in five years we're going to win that race And so he took that concept of marginal gains, and he improved every piece of riding the bike 1%, and in three years – The British team won the Tour de France and they continued to win the Tour de France. And we thought about that when it comes to pain. That's exactly what we're talking about in this book, that if you look at all these things that you can do towards making your pain better and you improve them just a little bit, the cumulative effect of that will be that you will turn down that volume on pain and you'll make your life and your functioning so much better.
3: So what ultimately is possible? Uh, there's pain management, and then there's the absence of pain. What's the most that someone with chronic pain can hope for, or acute pain for that matter, can yeah. hope for in managing um, what is seems unmanageable?
5: So so you have to get at the root of the pain. We t- we spend a lot of time, especially the the physician that wrote it with me, um, spent a lot of time trying to understand you kind of get to the root of the pain. Mm-hmm. Sometimes pain is really structural. And the my co-author is a doctor of osteopathic medicine. He uses a technique called osteopathic manipulative treatment. And this is a technique that osteopathic doctors are trained on with their hands. And sometimes with structural problems, they change the structure with their hands and it improves the function and sometimes they can make that pain disappear. He's done that on me several times and I've been astounded by just the use of his hands and his treatment that people will recognize as OMT. If they have a DO, which is a doctor of osteopathic medicine, they're, they're, they're physicians, they're trained, they go to medical school, same training, probably a little bit more training in muscular skeletal medicine and they know how to do these manipulative techniques. So there's so many things like that that you can do that can actually make a difference if there's a structural problem. Now, if it's nerve pain, then there are things that can be done like nerve blocks and injections and other things in the brain to turn down and rewire the brain so that the pain signal isn't firing all the time. If it's inflammatory pain, we know that there are certain things people can do. One of the biggest ones is change your diet and do an anti-inflammatory diet and we looked at all the diets. We chose the one that the Cleveland Clinic uses because it's an anti-inflammatory approach to eating and that will turn down the volume of pain. Um, so it's knowing what the root of that pain is and getting to the root of it and then adjusting your treatments according to whatever type of pain you're having.
3: We're going to take a quick break, but I'll continue my conversation with Dr. Linda Mental, who, along with her co-author, uh, Dr. James Cribs, are the authors of Living Beyond Pain, A Holistic Approach to Manage Pain and Get Your Life Back. The book is published by Baker Books. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
2: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
3: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing a conversation, a fascinating conversation, with my guest, Dr. Linda Mentel. She, along with her co-author, Dr. James Cribbs, are the authors of Living Beyond Pain, a holistic approach to manage pain and get your life back. Now, this may seem a challenge to even comprehend, but when we're facing an opioid crisis and uh, we find that a significant uh, percentage of the population continues to live with chronic pain, Uh, This is a hopeful approach uh, to managing what has made life for many unbearable. Uh, Let me ask you how important it is to work with doctors and therapists who understand chronic pain in uh, working through what's possible uh, to make life more manageable.
5: It's really important. I, I, I can use my own experience. I did not know what the cause of my uh, back pain was. I had actually had an injury about six months earlier. I fell on the ice. I was trying to ice skate. I was trying to show my children that I could still be 16 again <laughs> and ice skate like I did back then. Well, that didn't go so well. <laughs> and I had this awful fall on the ice, and I thought I was okay, but the pain just kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse, and I I thought I was going to lose my mind. And honestly... If I had been able to tolerate narcotics, because back then they were offering narcotics for that type of pain, I probably would have taken them. But I tell you, by the grace of God, I just I couldn't tolerate narcotics. So I was desperate for relief and I tried everything that I could think of. I didn't understand that the things that I was, was were doing, the things I was doing was actually making my pain worse. So, for instance, I was spending a lot of time paying attention to my pain. And focusing in on it. And I didn't realize that that was actually making my pain worse because whatever you tell the brain to focus on, the brain thinks that's important and will pay attention to it. And attention to pain makes pain worse. The other thing that, that I was doing that I didn't realize at the time was I was having a lot of thoughts like, uh, you know, what am I going to do? I can't get out of bed. I, I can't be with my kids. What if I'm disabled? What if this gets worse? and I was doing what we call catastrophizing with pain. I was having these catastrophic thoughts. They were very negative. My expectation was that I wasn't gonna get better. And again, now after learning so much more about this, I I now know that if you have expectations that things will be worse, your pain will be worse. If you have beliefs and assumptions that things aren't gonna get better, your pain's gonna get worse and you actually have a better chance of being disabled than if you have an optimistic, hopeful, but realistic view of, of improvement and getting better. So there were so many things like that, uh, changing my emotional state. You know, I would get very depressed um, thinking about how bad this was all getting. And in fact, I needed to be grabbing those thoughts and taking them captive and not going that depressed direction because that was actually ramping up the pain in my physical body. Mm. So the more that I started to learn about the mind-body connection with pain, pain really is a perception in the brain. Now that doesn't mean it's not real. It's real, but it's a misfiring of that alarm system that's going on. And you have to be able to deal with the way the brain has been rewired and create some new neural pathways in the brain and stop that signal from constantly going off. And that means calming down your uh, central nervous system as well. And so relaxation techniques, things like that work beautifully with chronic pain.
3: You mentioned that you couldn't tolerate uh, narcotics, but opioids are still being prescribed. And you also write that we're now in a post-opioid era for treating pain. How is the medical community pivoting, uh, for this kind of change, for finding new solutions? And is it ever okay to use opioids? Um, in the, the, the height of uh, a season of pain?
5: Yeah, I would just say that there are times when opioids are appropriate. I work with a lot of surgeons, and certainly they will give very limited amounts for just a couple of days of an opioid with a surgery. Um, so there are times when those, uh, those pain meds are appropriate. And I want to also say, I want to make it really clear to our listeners that, you know, just because you're on an opioid for, for pain doesn't mean you're an addict. And so there are people who can responsibly take those um, narcotics and they um, are not developing a use disorder, a substance use disorder, and they're being very monitored by their doctors. Now, the problem is that the risk of addiction is really high because you build a tolerance and as we were looking at this for the the book – narcotics really don't work with very well with chronic pain they're just not very effective so we have to have other things that we do um, the, the problem was that the doctors were originally told it's a very long story about how we got here but the doctors were actually told that these these drugs were not addictive and then big mm. pharma really pushed these drugs and the hospitals were pushing this it, uh, physicians were pushed to make pain the fifth vital sign to always assess pain. If you remember what I just told you, the more attention you give to pain, the worse pain is. So people were asking, physicians were asking, How's your pain today? Give your pain on a, a rating from 1 to 10. You're giving attention to pain, which actually makes pain worse. But they were so um, insistent that pain was the fifth vital sign, you had to assess it, and then you had to treat it. And that led to a lot of overprescribing for pain. Now, the good news. Is we have pulled way back on that. Regulations have gotten in place. There's something that's called a PMP that physicians look at to make sure that patients aren't going from doctor to doctor to get pain meds from anybody else. So the regulations have tightened up. We understand the addiction problems, and physicians are doing better. And we understand now what was going on with big pharma. And I think you're seeing class action suits and all kinds of things that are going on there. But that said, then if you stop something, you got to put something in its place. You can't just leave people then in this crisis of pain and say, well, good luck with that. You know, that that was the whole impetus of the book was, okay, so now we have all these people and what you were seeing, and I'm sure you heard it in your, your town is all towns in America were hearing it. People were desperate. They couldn't get their, their prescriptions and they were going to the street and they're buying heroin. And then people were overdosing on heroin. So we had to have a better way and a better solution to help people. Absolutely. We're talking about the book Living Beyond Pain, a holistic
3: approach to manage pain and get your life back. Uh, in Chapter 15, you say that when people are in chronic pain, they often overlook how their relationships are affected. What should, uh, what should we know about pain and relationships? Um, and you also write about uh, gratitude and how important that is, even though it seems counterintuitive when one is experiencing pain.
5: Yeah, so relationships are really interesting. If you're in love, your pain will go down. So that's my first prescription, find someone and get in love. But that is that is something that, that they've noted in the research, so love really helps. But when you're dealing with someone in pain, again, if you're having pain conversations all the time, you're actually not helping that person um, with their pain because you're again focusing that attention and it's the brain is paying attention and making it worse. So, for instance, if you're in a relationship with somebody, instead of saying in the morning, hey, how's your pain this morning? You could say, hey, how are you doing today? So you want to have compassion. You want to have empathy for someone that you're in a relationship with, but you don't want to enable the pain. And you certainly don't want to do too much for them because you see how bad they're hurting that you're actually – overdoing for them, and they're underdoing for themselves, and they're not getting up, they're not moving, they're not doing the things that they need to do to actually make their pain better. Now, the second part you asked me about was gratitude. It is kind of counterintuitive, like, what am I supposed to do? Get up and go, great, thanks, God, for the pain today. No, we're not talking about that. (laughs) We're talking about actually getting up and thinking about your life and saying, okay, I did get out of bed this morning, and maybe tomorrow I can do a little bit more movement even than that. But I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for the house I live in. I'm grateful for my job that allows me to be not be at a desk, but maybe work from home. Whatever it is, focus on the things that are good. This is a biblical principle. Think on things that are good and lovely and of good report. Think on good things. When you do that, you're actually impacting that mind-body connection and affecting your pain in a very positive way.
3: There is so much that could be said about the book, but I would encourage listeners who are either experiencing chronic pain uh, live with or love someone who is, or just want to have a better understanding of the issue. Living Beyond Pain is the title of the book, A Holistic Approach to Manage Pain and Get Your Life Back. The book is published by Baker Books. And again, my uh, guest, Dr. Linda Mental. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can't wait for the next time.
5: Well, I'm so thankful that you're bringing some attention to this. And again, that you're helping your audience understand that there are there is hope. There is a way out of all of this that can make your life so much better and give you a Better quality of life, and there's meaning to be made in pain, as well. That sometimes what it does is it draws us closer to God, and it brings a new appreciation for life. So, thanks so much for all you're doing to help with the problem as well. Have a great evening. Bye bye.
3: We're going to continue uh, in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up.
2: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
3: Thirty four minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, he was among the worst of the Nazis. He was responsible for the construction of Hitler's slave labor sites and concentration camps. He personally altered the design of Auschwitz to increase crowding, ensuring that epidemic diseases would complement the work of the gas chambers. So pleased was Hitler by his work that he put him in charge of the Nazi rocket and nuclear weapons program at the end of the war. He had more power than SS Chief Heinrich Himmler. Yet why has the world never heard this man's name, General Hans Komler? Through decades of investigation, my next guest, Dean Reuter, along with his co-authors Colm Lowry and Keith Chester, present The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil, a work that unveils the shocking true story not only of, of Komler's suicide, that it was faked, but that he escaped exposure and justice through a secret deal. With the United States, Kammler never met justice and was hidden from public view. But to what end? Did he cooperate with uh, Nuremberg prosecutors investigating Nazi war crimes? Was he protected so the United States could benefit from his intimate knowledge of the Nazi rocket program and Germany's secret weapon? Well, we're going to talk about that. Dean Reuter is general counsel, vice president and director of the practice groups of the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy. He has overseen criminal investigations for two federal offices of the inspector general and was the editor of Liberty's nemesis, the unchecked expansion of the state and Confronting Terror, 9-11 and the Future of American National Security. He joins us today to talk about uh, his book, The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil. Dean Reuter, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, it's a pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Georgine.
3: This really is a fascinating book about someone I knew nothing about. The name was not familiar. I mean, we know the collective deeds of Nazi Germany and its uh, its leaders. But this particular individual I knew nothing of, which surprised me. I mean, not that I know everything. How did you select this individual and um, to write about and to bring his story to our attention?
1: Oh, It's a great question to start off. I got involved in this book project because uh, two researchers, the other gentleman you mentioned Mm -hmm. on the cover of the book, Keith Chester and Colm Lowry, one of them I've known from college, so 30 years ago. He approached me about a dozen years ago with this fabulous tale uh, that I didn't believe, but I didn't have to believe because all he wanted from me was a collaboration agreement as a lawyer so that he could share research with Dr. Colm Lowry, who he'd found in a World War II forum online. Uh, so I was involved as a friend and a lawyer just drafting an agreement so they could share information. Uh, and he continued to tell me stories about this all-powerful, all-evil Nazi general. And I was as surprised as, as you were, as you just expressed. This is fantastic. I thought he was sort of misreading the documents, mm-hmm. maybe. That, that it, there couldn't be a story that was this powerful and this big and this consequential from World War Two seventy plus years ago, uh, that hasn't already been fully told. Um, so I, I began this project with a lot of skepticism. Uh, so I didn't select this man to answer your question directly. He sort of selected us. Um, my my two co-authors and my researchers selected me, uh, and and I went from being a skeptic to being the the principal author of the book.
3: Well, let's begin by getting a little history of who General Hans Kammler. Uh, Was he certainly gained the favor of Adolf Hitler, as I mentioned briefly a few moments ago? Who was he, and how did he work his way up the ranks? Yeah, that's a great question.
1: I mean, uh, he, he was born in 1901 in what is now Poland. Um, and led a pretty unexceptional life uh, early on. His, uh, the, the major data points for us were that he became a man in World War I, and his father and he were both anti communist That was uh, how he was raised. He was as stunned as anyone when Germany unexpectedly lost World War I uh, and then suffered like other Germans did under the Treaty of Versailles, uh, and the whole world did through an economic collapse in the 1920s. So by 1930, um, he's getting a PhD in engineering. He was an engineer and an architect by training. Uh, He gets married. And then before Hitler even becomes chancellor, he joins the Nazi party. And before Hitler even becomes president, he joins the dreaded SS, the Schutzstaffel. Uh, So he was an ardent Nazi, an early adherent to Nazi ideology, Uh, not just sort of a follower, but a leader. Um, And um, he went on to do some fairly benign uh projects uh, before the war and in the early couple years of the war. He was doing civil engineering projects, irrigation and drainage and an and automobile test track for the police. But ultimately, as you suggested in your opening, he gets uh, elevated more and more in part because he had these credentials. He was trusted by Hitler's inner circle because he was an early Nazi. Um, and then he went into the Luftwaffe, which was the trusted part of the German military, at least in Hitler's eyes. Uh, so he ha- he had this golden ticket in terms of his credentials, and he kept uh, jumping up the ranks. And when they looked about for somebody to implement uh, the Holocaust, uh, Kamler was their guy. He he made rapid advances in efficiency and effectiveness and standardization and uh, processes in his other construction projects, and he ran those, you know, cradle to grave, so to speak. So he knew everything about how to build, where to build, getting materials, getting funding. Uh, Everything soup to nuts. And when they wanted to build up the the Holocaust and and build out the Holocaust, Hans Kamler was the guy they turned to.
3: How did he manage to keep his name off of the lips of those who know that history very well, who followed it at the time and certainly since? Uh, How did he manage to escape notice by those who uh, have studied and written about the the, um, Second World War in such great detail?
1: Well, it's a great question, and uh, that was just as vexing. It's because, frankly, at the end of the war, he committed suicide, uh, and his wife, who had five, uh, three children at the time, uh, had him adjudicated dead by a German court. So the official story is uh, that this is a dead man, and everyone lost interest. Um, we, in fact, doing the research for this book, we contacted the United States uh, Department of Justice Office of Spe- Special Investigation, which is our non- Nazi hunting group. We contacted the Mossad. We contacted the Wiesenthal Center and found that none of them pursued him uh, because he was dead. Um, and uh, But h- the idea that he committed suicide, once we understood his biography and his drive and his ardency, his commitment, his loyalty... The idea of a suicide didn't make sense to, to any of the three of us who worked on this project, The Hidden Nazi. Uh, so we were convinced that he hadn't committed suicide, and we went about to prove it. And in the book, The Hidden Nazi, we do prove that. Uh, well, but that accounts for why he was never pursued. He was lost to history because he was of the,
3: dead. One of the things that makes this such an interesting book is that fact. It was presumed that he had committed suicide – But there seems to be evidence to suggest that not only did he not end his own life, but that the United States had possession of him. And discovering the reason behind that for what length of time, where and all of that makes this really an interesting uh, story. You had an opportunity to interview Hans Kammler's son firsthand. He was on his deathbed in Germany. Was that very instructive about whether or not his father actually lived or uh, just understanding who Um, Hans Kammler was?
1: I think it was an essential part in understanding who he was and how he was perceived by his family, Um, but it wasn't instructive in some major ways. It was clear to me uh, this uh, Jorg Kammler was the son's name, um, and he was elderly by the time I met him a few years mm-hmm. ago, and, inter- and interviewed him. Um, he was looking to me for information. It was his mother that had had his father adjudicated dead by a court, but it was clear the family never really believed that story. That was sort of a convenient thing, and I think it was something of a smokescreen uh, to have him, uh, you know, a- a- adjudicated dead, but. They knew that um, the common practice, the required practice in the war was to return an officer's identity disk, their dog tags, uh, return their sidearm and their papers. and that wasn't done. There was never a body found. There was no grave site, even despite post-war searches for a grave site. And Hans Kamler was an Obergruppenfuhrer, which, for your listeners, as we explain in the Hidden Nazi, that's the highest rank you can achieve in the SS. It's, it's equivalent to George Patton. So the idea that he, he's dead without a body being produced is like losing George Patton's body in 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 battle and not returning with it and never being able to find it. Um, so when we interviewed his son, when I interviewed his son, he, he clearly didn't buy the suicide story, and he wanted to know what proof we had that his father had lived on. Mm. Because if that's the case, put yourselves in the in the shoes of, of his children. He'd abandoned his family if he hadn't committed suicide.
5: Now,
3: you uh, were able to uncover government documents that proved that Hans Kammler was in U.S. custody for months after the war's end. Uh, and uh, after he his suicide had been declared although unconfirmed
1: yes uh we we have the documents and we present them in the book they're actually in the hidden nazi book several of these documents are photographed and presented as photographs in in the text of the book uh so the proof is all right there for the for the readers um and i was i was stunned by all this by the way <laughs> i mean it really is a a a a jarring sort of series of events we 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 always thought that he had struck a deal with the Americans because we had orders. We had uh, proof of him moving technology throughout Germany and then delivering it to the United States. And that all indicated, okay, he did that to try and rehabilitate himself and save his own skin. But then why does he commit suicide at the end of the war? That story didn't hang together until you realize he lived. He didn't commit suicide. And then the idea that he turned over all this technology to, to clear his own name and to rehabilitate himself – Makes a lot of sense. And that's, uh, that's what we explain in the book, The Hidden Nazi.
3: We're going to take a break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about the book titled The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil. My guest, Dean Reuter, will be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
2: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
3: Fifty minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show talking about a fascinating book many years in the making, The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil. My guest, Dean Reuter. Before we talk about the fate of this uh, unknown player in Nazi Germany, uh, let's talk about some of the things that um, uh, that he actually did. Uh, uh, he can't use the excuse. I was just following orders. He was actually giving orders. Tell us a little bit about his um, his record of um, of misdeeds, if you will, General Hans Kammler.
1: Sure, it's it's pretty abysmal, but uh, and I present all this in in, in the yes. book Hidden Nazi. He really did make the the Holocaust uh, possible. He he was the person who identified Auschwitz as the site for the main camp, the first big camp, and doubled and redoubled the size of a camp that already existed. Um, he designed the standard concentration camp's barracks, overruling his subordinates di- design for brick barracks. He decided we'd make these mass-produced, cheap wooden barracks. Uh, the architectural drawings are in his hand with his signature at the bottom. There's a, a a note in the margin that there's 550 people that are supposed to be crammed into each of these barracks. And there's just a stroke of a pen through that number, and the number 774 is written over it. Um, so what was already too crowded is just increased by 30, 30% with a stroke of a pen. Um, and he was doing all this work hands on. Uh, he wasn't just pushing paper from, from Berlin. He was visiting these camps incessantly, barking orders. His his inferiors feared that he would shoot them if they didn't perform well. His nickname was Staubfalk, which is dust cloud, which sort of describes his frantic pace going from one camp to another. So not just Auschwitz, but camps throughout the Reich. Um, and then once the camps were built out, he turned to uh, designing the gas chambers and the ovens. Uh, and again, we have document after document with his signature uh, talking about fine-tuning these uh, mechanisms of death. And he, he did it, I mean, just in remarkably cold uh, but efficient ways where he would have design buildings so there'd be a gas chamber in the basement uh, and an elevator to uh, a crematoria above. Um, and he had the sick prisoners delivered by rail to the right to the right to the gas chambers and the healthy prisoners were to walk to a further camp, the slave labor camp. Um, And and he was admired by his colleagues for his ruthlessness and his efficiency. Uh, The the quotes we have from from Mm. other people are just astounding. And these are people who are themselves steeped in murder uh, and death, think that this guy is the worst of the worst. And then he went on from from, from there to, to sort of invent Germany's slave labor trade. So those are really the hallmarks of his, his sort of perverse, deviant uh, behavior.
3: Hitler was very pleased by his work. He was put in charge of the Nazi rocket and nuclear weapons program. And it's also been said that uh, he and others made uh, efforts uh, through perhaps – Um, taking money um, away uh, to establish the Fourth Reich. Now, someone of this sort of notorious background, we would assume that you would want to confirm that he did, in fact, end his own life, and you certainly would not want to partner with him. As the book points out, he never met justice, was hidden from public view. Um, But to what end? Why would the United States harbor someone like this? And I think your book is convincing because you have records that detail how the United States had him in uh, their custody for uh, a period of time. To what end? Sure. You mentioned uh, that that he ends up, by the end of the war, because he's so proficient at everything else, he ends up in
1: charge of all of Germany's secret weapons. And your listeners who are students of the war, they know that uh, long before the war was over, it was known that Germany was going to lose the war. But even so, uh, Hitler was whispering and, and Goebbels was whispering in speeches about wonder, this wonder weapon, these vengeance weapons that were going to come on the field of battle and maybe reverse the course of the war. These were the rockets, the German V1 and V2 rocket. Um, and once the V2 rocket was tested successfully, Kamler and, and Himmler reached out and seized that project, made it their own. That's how Kammer uh, got in charge of it. Uh, This was a supersonic liquid-fueled rocket uh, that was so far ahead of its time, it really didn't seem to belong on a World War II battlefield. And everybody wanted this rocket when the war was over. There was going to be this mad scramble for this direly important uh, technology. Um, and, it, and and we got the rocket team. The United States got the German rocket team, the vast majority of the, of the scientists. Everybody thinks we sort of got them by accident. Um, but it was Kamler who delivered them. And this is the rocket team that got us to the moon. But more importantly, it's the same technology that became our ICBM and, and helped us win the Cold War. I think that if we didn't get the rocket team, uh, the geopolitical landscape today would look a lot different. Um, and we show the documents this team was um, on the northern shore of, of Germany on the Baltic coast. the Russians are approaching in January of 1945 Kamler signs an order to move them to the German interior uh, a month later we have what's called the Yalta agreement it's the division of German territory by the Allies after the war they're already talking about who's going to get what and this the site for this rocket team is going to be in the Russian zone so Kamler moves them again and uh, puts them on his own train, the Vengeance Express, and sends them down to Bavaria right into the hands of the advancing U.S. Army. Uh, And we think that's all part of the Kamler deal, as we say, in in The Hidden Nazi, the book.
3: Was there a price uh, that he paid? Uh, I mean, obviously, he was useful to the United States weapons program. But was there a price exacted? You had an opportunity, for example, to talk with a Holocaust survivor who gave testimony, or I should say, gave testimony of Kamler's death camps and the enduring impact that that has has had. Obviously, he was useful, but was there a price paid?
1: Well, so we know he was in custody for 10 to 12 months after the war, and then he just vanishes. Uh, So, I mean, and we, we, in the book, uh, we're very clear when we're talking about something we know mm-hmm. uh, and then something that we're speculating about. So we do spin out a couple of different scenarios about what ultimately happened to him. The last thing in the file is a request from Great Britain. This is 10 months after he committed suicide, quote unquote. Great Britain's asking for him from us. Uh, they want him extradited. Uh, and there's a note to the file from the Americans saying, we don't object to the extradition. And then he just vanishes. It's, it's as if he'd never existed. Um, uh so you really have to read the book to figure yes. out what we think is the is the most likely scenario but uh the bottom line is he never faced justice you're you're absolutely right about that um having said that uh, we're very careful not to try and second guess the decisions made by the Americans on the ground in in making the trade um because those those that weapons technology was so consequential um you know, I don't, I'm not sure we'd live in the free country that we all enjoy today if if, if we hadn't had those uh, scientists on our side.
3: Yeah, as frustrating as it is to consider that he didn't face justice, it's important, and you provide context—the broader context. With you know, sitting from the vantage point of the 21st century, looking back, it's easy to draw conclusions that uh, don't uh, regard what was happening at the time. But it is very. Uh, frustrating to, to think of someone like him who didn't face uh, justice, I mean, in this life. Um, no doubt. One of the things that you also write about was um, that he uh, apparently was charged with and um, had access to money, maybe stolen money, uh, that was uh, set aside to establish the Fourth Reich. Um, I- as far as we know, he would not have had the freedom to have moved forward with that sort of plan. But your thoughts on on his role in um in making extensive preparations uh, for the establishment of a Fourth Reich.
1: Sure. It's very clear, as, as we show in the Hidden Nazi, that there were plans made, developed, and executed for a Fourth Reich. Um, there was a meeting in the fall of 1944, so eight or ten months before the war's over, with high government officials and German industrialists, and the 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 message in that meeting was to take all your gold, move it offshore, take all your technology, move it outside the Reich, all in anticipation of a resurgence of Nazi Germany. And if you look at the arc of history, Germany was suddenly and unexpectedly defeated in World War I, yet they rose again. So it's natural to expect w- with, you know, on the eve of their n- next defeat, they would lay a plan to rise again. And that's exactly what they did. Um, and Hans Kammler played a, a critical role in that. We even found a 1953 CIA report that shows tens of thousands of Germans in in uh, Argentina. And the CIA report reads like um, an alarm bell, uh, fear that there was a resurgent Nazi Germany being planned from there because there were tens of thousands of people. There were places that looked like Bavarian villages with German cafes and culture, even German Chamber of Commerce. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, lots of technology down there. And they were afraid that, that Nazi Germany would rise again. Of course, that never happened. But um, it's fascinating. And, and this story's never been told that Germany really concretely laid those plans and then executed them.
3: Well, it is absolutely fascinating. The book, once again, is uh, titled The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil. Uh, Thank you so much for talking with us. And um, I look forward to uh, hearing others comment on uh, the book once they've had the opportunity to read it as well. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me on, Georgine.
3: By By the way, the book is published by Regnery History and is available in bookstores. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.